thanks for downloading this episode from Teachers Talk Radio. You can find the full schedule and listen back to all our shows at ttradio.org. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, leading publishers of books, directories, educational guides and magazines aimed at schools in the UK and beyond. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and good evening and welcome to Teachers Talk Radio for the late show this Monday evening. Um, Thank you very much. Uh, If you have just clicked play on the listen back version of this, which will be available via Twitter spaces, but also as a podcast on the TT Radio website. Really delighted this evening to have Craig Barton along and we're going to be discussing all things tips for teachers, his new book through John Cat Educational, uh, which I'm really excited about because one of the things that I think uh, we sometimes miss within the whole, um, I don't know, sort of, I'm not going to call it CPD circuit, but quite often overlooked are the fundamentals, uh, the things that teachers sort of encounter every day in their teaching, um, whether that be situations, whether that be challenges. And sometimes they can appear to be simple, but but actually these are very complex things. So in the course of the next 90 minutes, we will be talking th- about habits and routines, means of participation for students, checking for understanding, responsive teaching, planning, expectations, modeling, student practice, homework, and, and finally improving as a teacher and developing as a teacher. Um, so I'm really excited to sort of discuss all these, in inverted commas, tips for teachers with Craig. A little introduction, first of all, on Craig himself. Craig loves teaching, doing, speaking and thinking about maths, but he's so much more than a math teacher, as you're going to find out today. He taught maths in secondary schools for 15 years and was TES maths advisor for 10 years. And he's now head of education at EEDI. Craig is also the author of the best-selling books, How I Wish I Taught Maths, and Reflect, Expect, Check, Explain. He's the host of the Mr. Barton Maths podcast and the creator of far too many websites, including, well, I'm not going to list them all. They're all on his website. You can find out. There's there's one, two, three, four, five. There's six of them. Um, Yeah, that's impressive. In 2020, he was appointed as visiting fellow at the Mathematics Education Centre at the University of Loughborough. And Craig has been lucky enough to teach maths and work with teachers all over the world. Um, So that is Craig Bottom. I'm really excited about this chat this evening. Craig, I'm just going to check. You can hear me okay. How are you this evening? Yeah, I'm good. Thanks, Tom. Can you hear me all right? Yes, I can. I, I know you're in a Premier Inn, so I don't trust Premier Inn um, as a sponsor of this show. Um, but <laughs> we'll, we'll see how that goes. Um, Craig, I'm, I'm really excited about this chat. Um, obviously, this evening's show is all around um, your book, Tips for Teachers, which I've read and really, really enjoyed. Now, confession here. It's 500, no, hang on, it's 590 pages long. It's a bit, it's a big book. It's a big book. So I think, <laughs> I think in the intro, you say that it's, it's sort of been built to be more a dip in and out, a reference guide to teachers. Would that be right? 
Yeah, well, I'll take. Well, let, let's get a few things sorted, Go. Tom, straight correct. away. There's been, there's Please been this correct big... my first 10 minutes of this show. That would be brilliant. <laughs> no, no, no. No, I'll tell you what it's, it is. There's been this big influx over the last few years of these little thin books. I call them more pamphlets. Yes. You know, Tom Sherrington, he's whipping out <laughs> Rose and Shine, you know, 20 pages, <laughs> like more like a leaflet. So I wanted something with a bit, a bit of substance. And the good news is, if you don't like the book, It'll keep your door open like a doorstop or so it could be a weapon or something like that. So you get more for your money. And I just I think it is kind of a dip in, dip out. But I wanted basically I didn't want to leave anything out. I wanted to I do it with all my books. I want to get all the knowledge that I have at that moment in time when I write it. I just want to kind of get it in there. And I've tried to structure it in a way that if you wanted to, you could read it from page one to page 590. Yeah. Or. What I suspect most teachers will do is, and this is what I hope, is you kind of choose an area that you want to develop in your teaching. You look up the relevant section, you read a few of the ideas and you, and you try them out one at a time. So I think it is a bit more of a dip in, dip out. But there is kind of a coherent narrative in theory anyway, run, running right through. I mean, I have to say from the outset, I, I certainly did not mean dip in, dip out as a diminishment <laughs> of the book. Um, <laughs> in fact, I much prefer a dip in, dip out book as I've always preferred that as a teacher. I mean, I think back to when I started teaching my favorite teaching book, certainly in the inverted commas olden days, was um, Teacher's Toolkit by Paul Guinness, which which yes, was fundamentally yeah. a dip in, dip out book. I never read it. You'd never read it cover to cover. And from, and no, from reading this and looking at it, it, it's sort of similar in the sense that it is giving you ideas. It is giving you tips. It is giving you strategies on a whole range of things. It, pretty much everything. I mean, is there anything you've not covered in this book about teaching? Yeah, good yeah, good good question. Um, I, I only try and write about things that I have experience of. And, and likewise, I'll, I'll never write about an idea if I've only tried it once, like either tried it with one group of students or seen it with just one group of students. I want it. I want to be able to at least have a couple of different contexts that I've tried it out on just so I can get a sense of the, the nuances and, and the, you know, the kind of critical features that make it work. That being said as well, um, behavior is a kind of big absence. I talk about norms. Um, I talk about routines. Yeah. But in terms of I, I didn't think it was worth, you know, chucking in 10 ideas to improve behavior, because I, I think that's something that's much more complex. And, you know, you've got people like Tom Bennett out there who, who know far more about this stuff. So that would be a big absence. Um, also, on my Tips for Teachers podcast, I've had a lot of guests who talk about reading and literacy and that will be an area that I just simply don't know enough about. It fascinates me. But again, I only want to write about stuff that I feel I've, I've at least a bit of knowledge about. Well, so they probably be the two big areas that I've left out. Yeah, and I've, I've seen sort of tweets or comments on social media about people consulting on things they're not, they don't feel they're expert on. Now, now to be honest mm. with you, I've been guilty of this probably six seven years ago i was asked to do a training session on something that i probably wasn't i don't know like i wasn't i certainly wasn't an expert but i wasn't even i wouldn't even say i was like completely secure now i said yes because it was sort of like i was used to saying yes to, to things so yeah. i said yes yeah and then after you know a year or two later i was like do you know what like you can't do that. Like you can't do that. <laughs> you, 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 you can do it. And I'm sure many people do and, and make a lot of money out of it. But I, I, it was sort of a lesson learned for me. Like, you know, like if you're gonna, if you're gonna do that, then 
than being at you know have that knowledge there. Anyway, that's that's a side issue. What we are going to do? No, but you just yeah, on, sorry, on. Tom. Just on that, just just a couple of things on that because I find this absolutely I fascinating. Yeah. So there'll be there'll be, two, there'll be two areas that I'm also really reluctant. So I get I get lots of them. Um, so I'm very lucky these days. I get to visit you know loads of schools every week, see hundreds of lessons. But I get lots of um, requests from primary colleagues. And I always say, look, I've only ever taught secondary. I've obviously worked with a lot of primaries. I've visited a lot yeah. of primaries. But, well, first thing, you could not pay me enough money to teach primary. I'd be so out of my depth, it wouldn't even be funny. Like with the range of, you know, the, the breadth of knowledge and the depth of knowledge. The different, uh, the different, different ranges subjects. of snots. You'd have to oh, light off those as well. The God. different colours. You get the slightly well, light green. You get the dark greens. <laughs> Would not have a bloody clue. So I always, I always say there. Look, I'll, I'll happily, you know, I'll happily come in and do a, do a session. But the big disclaimer will be, and um, I can only take this on from a secondary perspective. I can only come in with my secondary hat on. So you know, you might be better getting a primary expert in and so on. So primary is always an interesting one for me because you know, year six maths and year seven maths, you might not think would look all that different. It's the whole context that's different. So, so primary's one. Um, and the the um, the other one for me is whenever I'm asked to do whole school stuff, because, again, I, ca- I can only, as you'll have probably noticed from the book, Tom, like I set everything in the maths classroom because that's all I can talk about. So what I always say is, look, the best thing I can do, and I made this decision when I wrote the book, yeah. I think the most useful thing I can do for the reader is to describe exactly what I do and why I do it in my maths context. And then the challenge will be for you to think, okay, would this work in an English context, the history context, the geography? And if so, what would I need to change to make it work? I I find that more useful than me trying to claim, you know, you could do this when you're teaching volcanoes or Battle of Hastings or, you know, nouns and stuff like that, because I'd just be guessing. I I don't know. So I yeah, it's a a difficult one, isn't it? I I, I think the best we can do as as authors, as trainers uh, and stuff like that is just to kind of Focusing on our area of expertise and then the challenge with the readers and the audience is then to think, how would they adapt that for their knowledge of their unique context? But it's yeah, it's a constant challenge, I think. Right. And, and just for everyone listening, by the way, I, I just want to say a massive hello to to everybody who's already joined us live. Um, so we've got uh, the uh, Mr. ST, Stammer underscore teacher. Good evening to you. Uh, we've got KJ McIntosh. Good evening to you, and thanks for already sort of sharing the show. Um, and also we've got Steve, Dan, Jan. Um, we've got Nicholas, Steph. Oh goodness, we've got quite a few people already joining in. Uh, just to let you everyone know, as we go through the show, what we're going to be doing is talking about. I think I've chosen maybe ten of the tips from Craig's book, and we are going to be discussing them. And obviously, it would be lovely. If anybody wants to comment or contribute in any way to the discussion, you can do that in two ways. You can click the little comment icon on the bottom right hand side, which has a little speech bubble in it. You can click hit that and you can make a comment or at certain points in the show, we might also bring in some speakers. So if you want to request to speak, all you have to do is click the little icon on the bottom left hand side, which has the microphone on it and you can actually call in to this Teachers Talk Radio show and get involved. Um, as I say, some of you will be listening back to this as a podcast or space, in which case completely disregard everything I've just said because it will make <laughs> no sense whatsoever and just continue to listen. Um, but 
Craig, I wanted to, we've got sort of the, the overview there out the way, but before we move on to the tips themselves, how long did it take you to put together this book? Because I'm always interested in the, the way an author puts together a book. So how long did it take you to write this? Was it all from scratch? Um, yeah. How, how, you know, where did the idea come from? Yeah, uh, good, good question. The, so I wrote my first book, How Wish I Taught Math. So that came out in oh, 2019, 2018, start of 2018. And that, that, took, that, that took a long, long time. That was, um, yeah, I've been thinking about that for years. And then two years later, I, I released my second book and that was a bit quicker. And that was kind of a response to the kind of critiques yeah. and criticisms I got from How I Wish I Taught Math. So I, I felt that was almost like an apologetic book. And I wanted to try and explain some of the, the ideas in more depth. And then I thought that was me done for, for books after that. So I, I was completely out of ideas. But then, um, yeah, a couple of things happened. So first, I found myself doing fewer kind of workshops and conference talks and more in school work. So working with schools over the course of a year, you know, five or six visits regular. So I got to see the kind of progress that teachers were making yeah. and, and the things they were doing, as opposed to, you know, me just standing at the front chatting rubbish for, you know, a, a couple of hours. So as I'm doing that, I'm learning so much, as, as you'll know yourself, like there's there's no better form of CPD than, than watching teachers yeah. teach in different contexts. It's an absolute privilege. And so I'm sat there and I'm just seeing these practitioners like I'm talking you know, ECTs and, you know, non-specialists who are teaching these lessons. And I'm thinking, God, that is brilliant. And I'm writing this down and I'm just, I'm just getting so excited. I'm taking photos. I'm getting all ideas. So I'm starting to collect together this, all these fresh ideas. And I'm already at that point, I'm thinking, you know, there's, there's probably something in this. And then I had the idea to, so I've been doing my Mr. Barton Maths podcast for, for years now, but I had the idea to start a different podcast because my Mr. Barton Maths ones, they go on. Like I do some three hour epics, three and a half hours, and it's it's a killer for some people. That So I thought it might, might be worth experimenting with a new format. So I came up with this idea of this Tips for Teachers podcast where I um, invite guests on from the world of education and I ask them to share five tips and they could be tips on anything behavior well-being checking for understanding any form of pedagogy and so on and again i'm very lucky these days i think because of the, the podcast and the books um a lot of people say yes so you know dylan, dylan william came on daisy christadula tom sherrington but also these teachers in schools that i've been visiting who aren't household names i've managed to convince them to come on the podcast and share their five tips so before i knew it i think i had about a hundred new ideas that i'd not written yeah. about before yeah and then, so I, I all the time, every after every podcast, I'm writing these up. After every is lesson, there, I'm writing these up. Is there such a new thing as a new idea in teaching? <laughs> there is for me. <laughs> there is, when you're clueless as I am, there there is for me. And um, yeah, I think so. I, again, it's just fresh eyes, right? Because I yeah. think you can you can get just stuck doing the same thing, and that's why I tell you what's always interesting for me is whenever you visit a school, and again, you, you may find this, and listeners may find this as well. If you visit a school and it's a really stable department and it's quite rare in maths these days where you get stable departments but let's say you've got a department where you know the teachers have been there kind of five or six years yeah. what's all interesting there is ideas that you know as an outsider you may come in and think are obvious actually you know aren't obvious at all because it's only when you see different teachers teach in different contexts that you see new ideas or different ways of interpreting you know fairly standard ideas so again we'll come on to specific tips later on but just as a little example whiteboards is an interesting one like i've i've used whiteboards for years but if you ask me what are my kind of 
if you'd have asked me 18 months ago, give me some tips on whiteboards, I'd maybe to be able to list four or five tips. But in the course of, you know, visiting schools and stuff, all of a sudden I've got 20 tips because well, I'm, yeah, I'm seeing people. Yeah, I think you've got 21 in, in here. Is that right? Yeah, and I'm up to, I'm up to 25 now as <laughs> yeah. well because I've just got a new one well, today. I, I, yeah. I'll yeah. get 50 at some point and then we'll go to war <laughs> over it, I swear. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what I mean, right? Like it's that I'm sure there are no new ideas, but there are certainly yeah. ideas that no, not everyone's seen. And this is the point because, so I see one of the roles of the book as to kind of, get into other people's classrooms in a way that other teachers aren't able to and to to learn from the experience of other teachers in a way that other teachers aren't able to just because i'm in my very privileged position that i can learn from you know people all over the country and, and beyond so yeah just to kind of answer your original question i was just i just took a load of notes and once i had a kind of critical number of tips i think 100 was the kind of benchmark i set myself i then started to think about structuring these grouping them together getting a bit of a narrative and then it's really interesting. Once you get, say, seven tips on an idea, then you're always on the lookout. And then you start to that seven becomes eight, becomes nine, becomes 10 and, and so on and so forth. And as soon as I knew this was going to happen, as soon as I'm in the editing process of the book, more I'm getting more tips. I'm getting more ideas. I'm constantly visiting schools. And my my editor was absolutely fantastic. Like I owe a big time because she was changed. She was adding. Let me add new tips right up until like the deadline. But even now. There'd be another 30 tips I could have added into that book and stuff. So, yeah, I'm, it's it's just such a such an inspiration when I'm lucky enough to, to visit schools, I've, as I have been today and will be next week and, and so on and so forth. So so to, to cut a massive long story short, once I had those tips, the writing was pretty quick because I'd, I'd written up most of them. So the actual final thing was probably about two months of intensive um writing just because i was just kind of piecing things together and, and you know, putting them into a narrative right well let's let's dig into this because i want to sort of talk about teaching now um now one of the tips so we're going to go through the book and i've sort of highlighted these tips that i think are quite interesting to me and maybe to other people too obviously other people may pick other tips from the book but these are the ones that i sort of came across that i thought were quite interesting so tip number six in the book which is in the habits and routine section, says develop a set of high value activity structures. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Now, you say here, what's the problem? Well, the challenge is, and, and this is to everyone listening uh, at the moment, to think of five topics or concepts from your subject that you would teach in a typical year. For Craig, that would be sequences, Pythagoras, ratio, circle theorems and averages um for a history teacher like me i guess goodness me i mean history geez i mean i'm thinking like okay let's pick like year nine i guess maybe uh let's go industrial revolution uh causes of world war one uh causes of world war two uh cold war and um yeah something else um next think of your favorite activity to use when teaching each of those Finally, think about how many of those activities share the same structure. In other words, the content changes, but the task structure 
stays the same. And then it says, what? well, I've missed out a paragraph, but that doesn't matter. What's the tip? Try to develop a set of high-value activity structures. Craig, what is a high-value activity structure? Yeah, I'm glad you've chosen this one, Tom, because, again, I think my fear with a lot of the tips is maybe they are math-specific. Again, I don't pretend to have any expertise or experience in other subjects, but I get the sense this one transfers across because I've spoken to Harry Fletcher Wood about this, and he seemed to agree with me on this. So a high-value activity structure is one that repeats again and again across different topics within a year group and also across different year groups. So uh, to give an example in maths, um, Venn diagrams is a very popular, for me anyway, activity structure, a way of sorting information. So I could have, to give give an example, if I was doing fractions, something like that, I could have, um, and one of my Venn diagram circles, a fraction that simplifies, and in the other circle, the numerator, the top number is a prime number. And the job of the kids will be to fill in the regions where they intersect, where they differ and so on and so forth. But the key point there is, all right, I'll use that structure for fractions. But then in a couple of topics time, when I'm teaching ratio, I'll use the structure again. When I'm teaching solving linear equations, I'll use the structure again. And the key point is that as kids get familiar with a task structure, they need to dedicate less attention to the structure itself, which frees up more attention to think about the content. Whereas the opposite of this is what I did for many years, where I'd have my favorite task for sequences. I'd have my favorite task for Pythagoras. And that's great. And we should never sacrifice, you know, quality tasks. But the problem is there, if you're constantly introducing new task structures, a lot of curriculum time is spent explaining the structure how it works what you have to do for this task what the expectations are and so on and then a lot of kids attention is taken up thinking about the structure what do i have to do here and so on and so forth whereas as i say if you can get these set of high value activity structures that repeat again and again you're getting more for your money and particularly if you put a lot of time into getting the routines and expectations right the first time you introduce it then the second time, you're a lot quicker getting into the into the meat. And the kids have, I, again, as I say, you have to dedicate less attention to it. And then you repeat it again and it's quicker still and so on. So, again, I, I try and v- develop this set of these structures so that I'm better at running them. My kids are better at understanding the structure so we can dedicate more time and attention to thinking about the content. I'm interested because because for me, I mean, an example for me, I, I use Venn diagrams. I've, I I use them in history. In fact, I was using one last week um, teaching causes of civil uh, the, the the British Civil War um, with with key stage three. Um, so you had like money, power, and uh, religion as the three nice. causes, and then you you set up the Venn diagram around those three, and then you had all the different causes, and then the students have to put in. Uh, the, the, I think I had 20 of them and they had to decide where all these went and obviously some of them ended up in the middle because they were yes. about money, power and religion. So I get that and that's, a, that's great. Why is, can you explain, why is a Venn diagram activity a, a high value activity? Yeah, so it's, it's high value in the sense, again, this is just my definition, yeah. it's high value in the sense that you get a lot of mileage out of it. Yeah. So again, without wishing to guess, Tom, I'm guessing that you can use that same structure yeah. for the next topic you're teaching or for the next year group that you're teaching. Yeah. 
So every time you use a Venn diagram, you get better as a teacher at running that activity structure because you learn where kids are going to stumble on the structure itself, how to introduce it. You perhaps think of some more probing questions yeah. you can ask. Maybe the kids generate their own Venn diagrams and so on and so forth. But crucially, every time the kids use it, they don't have to think about, oh, this is a Venn diagram. So when we do Venn diagrams, we need to do this. And this region means it. They don't need to do that. They can think much more about the actual content of that task as opposed to the structure. Whereas what I see a lot, and again, it may just be maths, I don't know. I see these really elaborate task structures, which are great, but they take 10 minutes to explain. Then the kids are trying to get their head around what you actually do. And then the, the time's ticking away, the attention's ticking away, and then it never repeats. What is almost dead time, once that activity's done for Pythagoras, it's not, that structure isn't popping back up again in a couple of topics time. Yeah. So high value ones for me are where the structure repeats again and again and again. And as teachers, we get better at delivering them and kids get better at understanding the structure so they can give more attention to the content, if that makes Absolutely. sense. Absolutely. Apart from this, the, the Venn, using, using the Venn diagram as a yeah. tool, what other high value activity structures could you sort of suggest or recommend? Yeah, so there's loads. I'll try and avoid math specific ones. So another one would be diagnostic questions. So the first time you try, you ask a kid a multiple choice diagnostic question, perhaps you have to spend time saying, okay, so there are four answers here. One of them's right, three of them's wrong. And I'm going to put the question on the board. I want you to think in silence first. I don't want anybody talking. Um, I want you to decide whether you think the answer is A, B, or C. I only want you to hold your voting cards up when I say. Yeah. I don't want anyone shouting out. I want you thinking about what the answer is and your reason for the answer. So you have all this set of kind of rules and expectations. The first time you do it, it's a nightmare because you're having to spend, you know, you're having to practice it. You're getting your standards high. The kids are making mistakes with the structure itself. But I don't mind that because I'm going to use a diagnostic question at least every other lesson, if not every lesson, with most classes. So it's the kind of structure that I can put the time into getting the routines right because I'm going to get so much mileage out of it. So by the time, you know, by the time we get to, let's say, November with any class, I can put a diagnostic question on and be confident that almost all my kids attention is thinking about the answer to the diagnostic question as opposed to having to think what is my role in this task what does sir want me doing at this moment do i just think about the answer do i call out do i think about my reason they've got that sorted so diagnostic questions will be an example in maths and i assume a lot of other yeah. su subjects have a high value activity structure where you put the time and you sweat the small stuff at the start because you're going to get the payoff as it goes through whereas if I was only asking one diagnostic question once, there'd be no point. I'd be mad to do all that because I'd have wasted so much time because the kids aren't learning anything whilst I'm teaching them the structure. But it's an investment in time because we're going to reap the benefits later. And there's loads. I'll just give you one, one other one. Um, so learner generated examples in maths will be uh, one. So I have this framework I use where I'll say and I, I get the feeling this might transfer across as well because I've seen this done in English. So I'll give them a. I'll give, I'll tell you what, I'll give an English example. I'll, I'll gamble on this. I'll break my own rule on this. But you may say, let's say you're teaching, um, you're, you're revising um, nouns in English. Yeah. So you may say to students, okay, on your mini whiteboard, split your mini whiteboards into, into quadrants, into fours. 
Top left-hand corner, give me an example of a noun. So the kids write down a noun. And top right-hand corner, give me another example of a noun. Bottom left-hand corner, give me an interesting example of a noun. And bottom right-hand corner, give me an example of a word somebody might think is a noun, but you know it's not. Now, the first time you do that, the kids are like, what the hell's going on here? What do you mean by interesting? What do you mean somebody might not think it is? So you have to explain all that. But the third time you do it, they're like, all right, OK, let's get into it. And all their attention is thinking about nouns or whatever it is that you're using that task structure for. So more and more these days, I invest my time, lesson time, into these high value activity structures and try and move away from these one offs and that, you know, aren't going to repeat again. And if I'm going to use a one off, it better be a bloody good activity to justify me not calling upon one of my bank of high value activity structures if that makes oh, sense oh absolutely i mean in history one that i think i would consider to be a high value activity structure would be um a a uh, i'll tell you one that i i enjoy is is the quizzing where the students take on the role of someone or something and answer multiple choice questions as that person um nice. and then with each answer there may or may not be a right or wrong answer but either way you can discuss the the results of that so for, for example you know one example of that would be um appeasement in the 1930s and it's like a you know you are chamberlain and then you're presented with a series of dilemmas and and issues and you have to pick from from three or four options for each one and then you sort of move through that's an activity that I, as a history teacher, can transfer into a lot of other topics. Um, now, obviously, there is that issue with workload. There is that issue with, you know, how you can easily transfer that structure without causing you to spend too much time on it. Um, and I'm guessing that's why you've picked the Venn diagram task as, as, a, as a good one, because that requires that's that's more a structure isn't it there's not really much there's no there's no task design there it's just it's it's putting that structure onto a onto a task isn't it yeah but in, in, i think i mean to you i think your example is a really good one right because yeah. for, for, for two reasons like i'd imagine the first time you do that with a class it's very rare that that goes very smoothly to begin with right mm. because it's it's a challenge for the kids and you know the kids again don't know their expectations and so on and so forth you you probably have to do a lot of they need the full context like, before they can do that activity anyway well yes i mean interestingly you could do that at the start of a unit and they just you know they don't know much and they and then do it again at the end and it's quite interesting then to yeah 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 the two responses and how yeah but but no absolutely but but thinking specifically about the structure itself yeah regardless of how well kids know you know the the, the content if that structure is unfamiliar it's not going to go smooth or as smooth the first time yeah. you do it you're going to need to model it and so on yeah. and so forth and you know it's going to take five minutes ten minutes whatever it may be but the fifth time you do that with a class as you've moved on to a different topic but you use that same structure that structure is much more familiar to the kids. So they you know, they just get into the swing of it much more. So, and, and that's why, again, for you to the second point for workload, I think these high value activity structures, if you can develop a set of these, they're much better for workload because again, you don't have to spend your time 
doing much prep for them because you're used to running them as well. And as you say, you can almost slot the content on top of the structure. Whereas as opposed to, right, I'm teaching this, I've got to find a new activity for this. Then I've got to think how I'm going to introduce this activity. How am I going to assess this activity and so on? Whereas if you've repeated that structure in the past, those questions have already been answered for you. So I think for a workload perspective, it's, and certainly for maths departments, this is definitely true. It's really good to have this collective set of these activity structures that repeat again and again, because that's the other thing we haven't talked about. If you as a teacher are using this structure and your colleague is as well, and your other colleague is, then you can collaborate. Then yeah. you can come together and say what worked well, what didn't. Yeah. Whereas if everyone's doing different, act different activities, it's much harder to collaborate on that. Whereas, so I always advise departments when they're looking at schemes of work and, you know, populating it with content let's not think of these one-off activities let's try and get these set of activities that repeat again and again and again so as a team we can get better at them and we can collaborate on them and so on brilliant i mean listen we could spend the whole show talking about tips, <laughs> yeah. which is high value uh, structured activities but we're not we're going to power on and we're going to talk about sure. other tips. So tip number eight, and this is still in the habits and routines section, says four types of words to consider removing from your teaching vocabulary. Now, I found this, mm. this section really, really interesting. Um, it's something I'm sort of passionate about. It's something I, I find really interesting, even since the start of my career, like, you know, when, when I sort of talk to people about like classroom management or, or behavior management, um, things like when you say things like don't do that and swap that for I want you yeah. to do this. Right. Things like that have, have yeah. always in. I mean, that's a very, very small scale example from Bill Rogers. But, you know, like like things like that have always interested me because we use so much language all day, every day as teachers that it's inevitable yes. that unless we train ourselves into using certain stock phrases or not using certain stock phrases, we will use them because of how much vocabulary we use in a day. So I'm wondering, I want to ask you first off, what are the types of words that you think, because you've picked four types of words mm. that you would ask teachers to consider removing from their teaching vocabulary? Yeah, it's I'll, I'll go for what well, I'll start with, Tom. Um, I'll go for the one that I wouldn't have thought of myself until somebody suggested it to me. And it's this word easy or simple. Um, and it was um, Christopher Such who um, when he came on Tips for Teachers, he he described this and it was part of his idea of depressurizing learning. And you know what I say? I well, I try and stop now, but for the last what 16 years, I'm always saying things are easy. Okay, this is a nice, easy question we're going to have a go yeah, at now. Yeah. Or this one's pretty simple. And, you know, it's just natural. Why, why wouldn't you do that? And my logic for doing it is to almost try and make it less fearful, the question, and, you know, give the kids a bit of motivation. Or oh, this is an easy one and so on. But Chris's point, and he's absolutely on the money now, is as soon as you describe something as easy, the expectation, well, the kids pick up that sir or missus expectation is that we are going to get this question right so if we don't get this right god we must be really thick because they've told it they've said it's easy and what's worse than that is as soon as you say a question or a task is easy what about the kid who's struggling are they really going to put their hand up and say sir i don't get it 
or I'm struggling with this? Or are they going to think, well, I must be really thick if I don't get this. So either I'm going to copy off my mate or I'm going to opt out. I'm going to choose just not to participate at all and so on. And it's just a mass. And it's one of those things. As soon as he said it, I thought, you know what? That that is. I mean, it's so obvious, right? Like, but I've been saying easy for years and years and years. So that that for me is that was the biggest one in terms of kind of changing my practice, trying to cut the word easy or straightforward or simple. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I think I think some of the other ones you mentioned are more. I would say more obvious ones because that that's one that I'm guilty of still doing what you've just yeah. described. Yeah. But the other ones to me are things that I've sort of always tried to avoid, like uh, using words like smart, clever, talented, and able. Um, you know, to me, that's one where, yeah, I mean, I mean, I could sort of, yeah, that's about reinforcing not doing that rather than where, whereas that exactly. easy one to me is one we go, Oh, hang on. Am I still doing that a lot? Yeah. <laughs> that's exactly it. That's exactly And it. then you've yeah, also put right. here, um, the fourth one, we can cover them all, but the fourth one you put here is high stakes measures of success, like targets, mm. grades, and levels. I find that one interesting. You've said within your yeah. sort of vocabulary of not using, because I think that's incredibly common in, in the classroom of teachers yeah. saying things like, we've got to try and get a level seven in this, or we've got to try and get a grade nine in this, or we've got to try and get a whatever it is. Um yeah, it's it's an interesting one. This so this was Mark Roberts suggested this to me, and and again, this 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 has always been part of my vocabulary, and um, cer certainly with a topic like maths, where you know there there are definite things that you know there's a definite percentage you can get that gets you a grade, whatever it is. So I've always been used to talking in terms of grades and and levels, but I think Mark was um, as as I write in the book, he had kind of two reasons for for kind of trying to cut it out or at least reducing this emphasis. The first is um, there the, is a motivational argument. And that if if our kind of extrinsic motivation is great, we know that extrinsic motivation is potentially short-lived and, and it's not going to be self-sustaining and so on. Whereas what we want is kids wanting to get better for, you know, the love of the subject, for their, their own mastery, their own self-esteem and so on and so forth. So removing that extrinsic kind of measure and instead, you know, saying, look, let's not worry about the grade for this. All that's important is that we want to get better at this. We want to get better. You know, everyone can get better, whatever stage you're at and so on. So I like that. And the other argument I, I really like, I think really holds true, is that it goes back to this easy thing, right? You put a grade, you put like a low grade on a question and a kid gets it wrong, they feel pretty crap about themselves, you know, yeah. for that. If for whatever reason they don't hit that grade in that particular area. Or the flip side of that is you put a high grade on a question or a task. And for some kids, that's going to be really motivating. For other kids, they're going to say, well, I'm a grade four student, so there's no point in me even attempting this. So, you know, forget it. So I just think, I don't, I don't think, you know, we should ban it altogether. I think, you know, for, for certain summative assessments, it's really important, certainly for the kids to see their progress and so on and so forth. But I think I've certainly tried to cut down my my emphasis on grades and levels mm. for, for those two reasons, particularly the motivation reason, if that makes sense. And that's difficult to do because as, as teachers, you are bombarded with yeah. with uh, success, targets, grades, levels. Um, and, and those high stakes measures almost surround every teacher, certainly who work in um, in the UK anyway. Um so another one that's here, which, again, I've been utterly guilty of probably early in my career, um, 
you know, I'm thinking back to when I first started. Um, you've said here words, words and phrases like quiet, does not participate yeah. much in discussion, should contribute more. Um, and these fra- words and phrases are still quite prevalent, I would suggest, within things like report cards. I, I do think they've lessened. I do think they I do think mm-hmm. people are starting to pick up on the idea that being an introvert is okay. I think that was, you know, um there was that sort of prejudice against introverts, certainly when I was training to be a teacher back in sort of two thousand and, and and six, seven, um, it was almost presumed that the louder the child is in the class, the better. You know, so it's quite interesting you've put that there. Do you want to sort of expand on that one a bit? Yeah, I do. Thanks, Tom. So, so this came from um, from Jamie Tom when he came on. He came on Tips for Teachers, and again, it's as you say, it it's one of those where I really when when he described it, and this is the way he set it up, and I think this might be a beneficial task for listeners, is to to think about one of your quieter students, your your more introverted students, and think about parents' evening and the kind of conversation you have with that child's parents. And it always goes like this. I know it does for me anyway. Maybe it does for you as well. I'd always say things like, let's say Jess. Jess is incredibly hardworking. She always gets her work done. She's a really good student. I just wish she'd contribute a bit more in class, or I wish yeah. she'd just be a bit more vocal. And what do the pa- And the parents of Jess will hear that from every single teacher. And what will they come away with? Particularly because it's often the last thing. It's it's almost like as teachers, we feel obliged to add something, yeah. you know, in there. It's almost like a bit uh, of a target absolutely. for them. So, and like Jesse, Jesse's parents coming away, you know, thinking, right, Jess, you need to do this, this and this. Whereas actually, I think, you know, if we had a classroom full of Jesses, I'd take that any day of the week <laughs> ahead of a classroom full of kids who are just yelling out left, right and centre, you know, and never shutting up half the time, you yeah. know. So I think Jamie's point was, and I think it's a really important one, that a lot of classrooms and a lot of schools are set up for the extrovert. We we reward students for volunteering, for, for oral contributions and so on. And it's because it's our kind of it's our proxy for engagement. It's our proxy for kind of activity, you know, and, and so on and so forth. Whereas Jamie's point is, if you were to kind of describe the model student, you'd want someone who's studious, who's thoughtful, who's pensive. These are the introverted students. So by trying to reduce those words, particularly in written reports, particularly in parents' evening, like, you know, a bit quiet, wish they contribute more. And instead going a step further and trying to design our classrooms so that we celebrate these quieter students. And I think we can do things like using things like mini whiteboards we've already alluded to. They're really good because you're not having to put your quieter student on the spot like you would do with a cold call. You can have them contribute alongside everyone else and then you can choose your moment to call upon them to either share their answer or have a quieter word with them to to build up their confidence and to show them that that they are being noticed. So I think it's a deep it's a really deep, wide ranging point. This one about just just thinking about are we catering for our quieter students? And I think the first thing we can do is to try and cut out or at least reduce the reference to, you know, kind of clinging on to that characteristic that they are a bit quiet because actually there's nothing wrong with being a bit quiet, you know? Well, absolutely. And I, I really like the phrase you've just used of, you know, so many classrooms are set up for the extroverts. Um, 
you know, mm. and that that is that is I think that is true. I agree with that statement. Um, I think it's difficult uh, for for a teacher because yeah. I think as a teacher, you you want people to engage with you. You see that positively. You want a class that responds to you and and you know gives you something back. But again, it doesn't have to be verbal. It doesn't have to be exactly. So that's exactly. and, and so that that's a really interesting. I like that, and I like tip. You know, I can't remember what tip that was. Tip eight. So that was tip eight, which is to cut out. Uh, certain sorts of words and phrases. And, and just to recap for everyone just joining us, we are reviewing uh, Craig's book, Tips for Teachers. We're going through all the different tips and we've just done tip number 10, or eight, sorry. And we've said that the words that Craig suggested cutting out are words like smart, clever, talented, able, words like easy, simple, straightforward, routine, words like quiet, does not participate much in discussion and should contribute more, and things like high stakes measures of success like targets, grades and levels, i.e. Uh, telling a student that if they don't reach X level, they're, they're in a mess, that sort of thing. Um, so that was tip number eight. Love that. That's great. Right. We're moving on now to chapter three which is about the means of participation and in a minute we're going to discuss tip 10 which is 10 ideas to improve cold call in inverted commas so um just before we do that hello to everybody who's just joined us welcome to teachers talk radio thanks for tuning in this show is brought to you by john cat educational as all of our shows are and we really, really appreciate them partnering and working with us. And Craig Barton's book, Tips for Teachers, is available through the John Cat website, John Cat Educational. Just Google it and you'll find it there. Um, a fantastic book, which is a handbook, a guide. You can read it front to back or you can do what we're doing, which is dip in and out of it. So tip number 10, 10 ideas to improve cold call. For anyone who doesn't know, Craig, can you tell people what a cold call is can we just call that asking people questions without people's hands being <laughs> on? or do we have to use the word cold call and be very cynical yeah, good, there? no good point <laughs> um, i think it's it's often worth giving techniques labels yeah. uh, doug lamarck who obviously coined the coin the yeah. phrase he makes the wider point that if we give techniques labels then we've got this shared vocabulary so we all know what we're talking about then so, yeah, I think it is useful giving it the label cold call. Um, I always define it as kind of the opposite of what I did for many years, which is I'd ask a question. Before I'd even finished asking the question, Josie's hand would shoot up. She'd be yeah. desperately waving at me. I'd ask Josie what she thinks the answer is. Josie would get it right. And I'd think, well, I've nailed that explanation there because the rest of the class has got it. Whereas cold call is the opposite of that. It's strategically choosing which students are going to answer questions so that in theory anyway, but again, we can talk about the subtleties of this in theory anyway, every child's got an incentive to be thinking hard and actively participating. Brilliant. Now, that's what a cold call is, um, just to clarify that. Now, you suggest in the book, you say, um, what's the problem? Well, you just described the problem and then you come up with multiple tips for cold calling can you maybe just pick a few of your yeah. top tips out because you've got a lot of them here so i'm just thinking which, which yeah. ones would you sort of point to and say they are the key ones 
Yeah, I'll give you a few. And the other thing, this goes back to what we were talking about before, Tom, as well. Since since the book's out, I think I'm up to about 15 now for cold calls. So I'll, I'll give you a few world exclusives that, that aren't in the book as well as, <laughs> as, as, as we go through here. So, yeah, um, I mean, the, ba- the most basic cold call tip is to make sure you put the question first and the name at the end. That's the most basic one, because as soon as you say the name, the rest of the kids might as well switch off because they know that's the only person that's that's going to be going to be called upon to answer. So that's the most basic tip. But what we'll do instead, we'll do some more subtle, um, subtle cold call tips. So wait time's an interesting one. I'm a bit obsessed with the research into wait time. And wait time is the amount of time essentially teachers give kids to think. And the most obvious thing to do is to make sure that you give kids time to think in between asking the question and calling upon the kid to answer. Yeah. So I may say something like, you know, what's two thirds add one quarter and I'll pause three seconds, four seconds or whatever. And then I'll say, Tom, now that's the obvious wait time. But what's really interesting, if you read Mary Budrow's research into wait time, there's an even more important one. And that is after the child gives the answer. So once once you, Tom, have given me your answer, whether it's right or wrong, I have to pause again to allow the rest of the class to process what you've said. Whereas what tends to happen in classrooms with cold call is teachers are getting pretty good at giving the kids time to think about the think about what the question is and what the answer will be. Mm-hmm. But then as soon as the answer is given, they either evaluate it. Yeah, that's right. Or they say, discuss that with your partner before the kids have had time to process it themselves. So just I, I, the way I describe it is let the answer hang in the air. Let that answer hang in the air only for a few seconds, a few seconds of silence. Yeah. So the kids have an opportunity to think, what has Tom just said? Is that the same as what I think, or is it different to what I think? How does Tom's answer impact my understanding of this? And then you can do something with it. So I, th- I think wait time is, is an interesting one. I'll give, you, I'll give you one other quick one as well. Um, and that is, I saw this today, right? This is good. So um, I was watching a teacher teach today. Yeah. Um, I'm, 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 I'm in a cushy, for listeners who've joined us late, I'm, I'm living the good life here. I'm in a Premier Inn in Stoke, just polished off a mixed grill. I'm, I'm having a great time here. So I've just... Watch the, watch the teacher teach today. And he had a really interesting way of using cold call. He had a dice, a big, big kind of a kind of rubber dice or whatever. And he chuck it at the kids and whoever caught the dice, they were the ones who were going to answer the question. And it's a way yeah. of kind of spicing up cold call. And his justification was to, you know, boost engagement and so on. Um, there was one issue, like I'm sure the kids were thinking more about the dice and the question a lot of the time. But I'll tell you the bigger issue. And you see this with cold call. As soon as you've caught the dice early on in the lesson, you might as well just have a sit off for the rest of the lesson because there's no way that dice is coming back to you because there's 30 kids in the class. Likewise, when you see a cold call being used, if you, Tom, get asked a question early on in the lesson, you can probably have a sit off for the rest of the questions as well because there's no way I'm coming back to you, particularly if you've got that question right because I've got 25, 30 other kids that I want to involve in, in the lesson. So yeah. a big, big advice I'd have with cold call, and you've got to make this explicit is to early on in the lesson, make sure you ask a kid twice and make it explicit. So you've got to say something like this. So I'll say, uh, whatever the question is, what's what's this ratio or whatever? And then I'll say, Tom, I'm going to ask you this. I know you were asked a question early on this lesson that you got it right. But in this classroom, anybody could be asked at any time. So everybody better be on the toes. Now, the price you pay for that is you get to hear from one fewer child in that lesson. But the advantage, the benefit of that is that the kids now realize that, okay, game on here. Anybody could be asked at any time. Whereas I really think there is this kind of, and I think kids are aware of this, if they get an answer in early, 
they might as well just have a rest. They can at least have a rest if they want for the rest of the lesson. So yeah, that, that will be a few ideas for cold call anyway. Yeah, I like that. And, and you know, this is making me again, over my years of teaching, um, I have got much better at that. Um, I think that was probably, you know, again, thinking back to sort of the first few years, um, it was something that I probably did badly um, in terms of not giving the wait time, not uh, utilising, which we're going to come on to next, actually, which is mini whiteboards and to- other tools that you can use to sort of check understanding, check, you know, check that people are with you and, and, and engaged and just not uh, um, sort of, you know, the hands up approach. Oh, yeah, you got it right. Let's move on. You know, mm. not sort of I, all the, all those things that that, that we know. Um, and 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 the, the, I sort again, I really sympathise because you know it's a very easy trap to fall into, and yeah. and it's not. And again, I'm quite happy for people to disagree with this. I don't think it's it's the worst thing in the world if you do do that, as long as you are aware you're doing it and sort of go, mm. you know what? Like, okay, I am. I need to sort of try to develop another a, a different way of doing it. And I need to develop what I'm doing. I need to give more wait time. I need to develop my questioning, etc. Um, but at least being aware of it, because that's the starting point for, for anyone, especially, you know, if we've got like new teachers listening, because it is difficult to embed approaches and it's difficult to give that wait time, you know, if, oh, you, if you're nervous and if you're, if you're, um, I mean, I, I, I can sort of do it now, um, but only because of the confidence and the experience. If, if that was sort of me, in my PGCE year and someone said, Oh, wait for 30 seconds because you know, you've got to give them a chance to think and someone to answer. I'd have probably just, uh, I just, I just would have, wouldn't have been able to do it. You know? Oh no. Well, well, well Tom, I'll, I'll go one further. If you'd have watched me teach first 12 years of my career, I think my question was, was absolutely bloody awful. My, my use of cold call. Well, for a start, I was a lot of hands up. I'd say 50% of my questions was, was hands up. And then when I now, when I now watch people who are far better teachers than me use cold call, this is yeah. how I've been able to put this book together with these subtleties. I'm not writing this from a position of an expert. I'm almost writing like a, a checklist for myself to make sure these are things that, that I embed. And you, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is the thing as well. Um, and you, you get, you get, you hear this from kind of really good instructional coaches. What you don't want to say to teachers, you need to develop your use of cold call because there's, as, as, as I try and allude to in the book, and, you know, there's, there's even more depth to it than that. It's, it's such a big technique. What you want to do instead is you want to pick one aspect of it, like wait time. So what I'm going to focus on for the next week is when I'm doing cold call, I'm just going to make sure that I tap out three seconds on my leg between asking the question and call upon, calling upon a child to answer. And I'm not going to go near thinking about anything else to do with cold call until that has become absolute routine for me. And then I'm going to choose the next technique as part of cold call to try and improve it. Because yeah. if you go in trying to improve cold call as a general thing, you've no yeah. chance. But And likewise, if you go in trying to improve questioning, you've even less of a chance because cold call is just one small part of questioning, you know. So that's what I've tried to do with these tips is really break some of these ideas down and encourage people not just to try and focus on a tip, focus on an idea within a tip and get yeah. that so it's routine before you move on, if that makes sense. Absolutely, it does. Um, again, big shout out to everyone listening. This is this Teacher's Talk Radio, The Late Show. It'll be available 
as a podcast soon after we finish here on the Teachers Talk Radio website, which is ttradio.org, uh, to listen back to. We've got Craig Barton, uh, who's got his book, Tips with Teachers, and we currently are going through all the different tips. I'm finding it really, really interesting but very relatable to my own practice so i hope you are too thanks to everybody for listening along just to give them some listener shout outs uh emily has joined us uh nadira has joined us we've got Lindsay, um we've got jan we've got uh stacy steve steve still is steve steve has been here the whole time so um, credit <laughs> to you steve for for uh yeah, for being with us the whole show so far. And we've just got so many listeners, I can't read them all out. Um, but welcome to you all. Um, and please do get involved. You can press the little icon in the bottom right-hand side, the little speech bubble icon, say hi, ask a question, uh, or, or leave a comment. That's absolutely great. And if you even want to contribute, you can press the little icon in the bottom left to request to, to call in if you have a question or a comment and you want to share it that way. Uh, we're going through to 9pm, so we've only got 34 minutes left. And there's absolutely... I, I sent you an email earlier, Craig, with about 50 tips on it. Um, <laughs> we're, we're only probably going to get through about three, but hey. Sure, sure. Um, so the, the next one was about whiteboards. So mm. I thought I'd pick this one simply because it's trended on sure. social media <laughs> so much. People are like obsessed with whiteboards. I, like, like, and there's those that say, oh, whiteboards have been around like, you know, since 1908 and we've been using them, you know, in every classroom. There's other people who say mini whiteboards are like this revolutionary new idea. And we, you know, here's all this. So where do you stand on mini whiteboards? Yeah, it's, it's a good one. So I, my, my history with them is is really interesting. So I remember when I got my first teaching job, my head of department, Debbie, was a massive mini whiteboard user and she was an exceptional teacher. But I just wasn't listening because I was all into the tech. So I yeah. started teaching whenever all the interactive whiteboards were, were, were coming in, all the Prometheans and Smart. So I, I put all my time and energy into developing those and I had fancy demos and so on. Whereas I'd, I'd forgotten the power of the mini whiteboard. And again, it's, it's almost become a bit of a cliche now, right? But it, it does so much with so little effort. It's, it's obviously a really good check for understanding because you're getting all your kids' responses as opposed to one or two. So that's why I refer to it, to use Dylan Williams' language, as a tool of mass participation. But it's also a check for effort because if a kid holds up a blank board, you know you're, they're, they're going to be the first ones you're going to ask because you need to decide whether they just can't be bothered or they have a, a lack of understanding. But it's also certainly in maths, and I assume it's true in other subjects, it's a great tool for collaboration. So if you're doing think, pair, share, if you get the kids to think and jot down notes on their whiteboard and then you can put the two whiteboards together to facilitate the paired discussion, it's just so versatile. But I'll tell you what's interesting, Tom, I don't, I don't know if you find this that whenever I'm looking enough to support departments, it's, it's almost easier to work with teachers who have not used whiteboards for a while or who are whiteboard skeptics, because you can kind of get them on board quite easily with, with some of the power of it. Whereas yeah. if you've got people who are kind of perhaps regular whiteboard users and they've fallen into these habits, sometimes it's a lot mm. harder to shift them because they almost say, they kind of nod along, oh yeah, I do that, I use whiteboards, I do that, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm. 
and sometimes it's harder to shift that kind of practice. So I'm really fortunate because I because for many years I didn't go near a mini whiteboard. As soon as I started watching people use them, I thought, you know what, I've got to get on board with this. Whereas the whiteboard kind of dabblers, I think they're a little bit harder to kind of, you know, upskill in a way, if, if that makes sense. It does. It does. Um, Claudia has called in. Claudia, I don't know whether you've got a question or comment to share. Um, it could be on mini whiteboards or it could be something else. You just need to unmute yourself in the bottom left. And then hopefully we can hear what you have to say with a bit of luck. If you're there, Claudia, are you there? Maybe Claudia's maybe Claudia's gone to grab a whiteboard. <laughs> Who knows? Um, but yeah, Craig. So in the book, you talk about like the different tactics. Uh, mm. In fact, you've come up with twenty-two. I said twenty-one earlier. It's twenty-two <laughs> ideas to improve the use of mini whiteboards. Can you pick out sure. perhaps? a couple that you yeah. think are the really good ones that people might not have heard of before. Yeah, of course. Yeah, no problem at all. Um, I'll do, again, you'll be able to tell me whether these are math specific or not. I have a feeling this first one might be math, science, MFL, I don't know, but certainly math, it works really well. And that is to use both sides of the whiteboard. So what tends to happen in maths is you give kids a question to work out. They do the working out on the mini whiteboard. Teacher says three, two, one, you hold them up. And the problem is, if you've got 30 kids in front of you, you can't pick out that final answer amidst all the working. So it's a check for effort, but it's not a good check for understanding because it's too hard for you to get that data. Whereas if you say to kids, do you working out on one side and then write your final answer nice and big on the other side and hold up that other side when I tell you, then you get a much better check for understanding the kid then, if you then warm call them to say, oh, I see, you know, Tom, you've got an answer to this. Tell me how you got it. The child can then either turn their board around to show they're working or can use that working as prompts whilst they describe it to you orally. So making use of both sides of the whiteboard, I think, is is, is a really big one. I love that one. Um, the other one I, I find particularly powerful is to get work that is in books visible to the rest of the class. So you, 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 what you often see, again, in maths, and it's, it happens particularly during the starter or the do now, or also during the practice phase of a lesson, is perhaps kids are doing the do now in their books, and then the teacher says, right, okay, let's go through the answer to question one. Tom, what did you get? Emma, what did you get? And the problem with that is, even though all the kids have got the answer, because it's in their books, you're only calling upon one or two kids to, to share their answer. So you're back to the problem of low participation and you know this lack of a whole class check for understanding. Whereas if instead you say, okay, you've done it in your books, fantastic. Right, we're gonna go through the answer to question one on your mini whiteboards or jot down your final answer to question one. Hover it, three, two, one, show me. And then you can go from there, either choosing interesting answers or if everyone seems to get it, you can crack on and so on. And you can do that during the practice phase as well. Kids have been working through 20 questions or whatever, and you pick a pivotal question, a critical question out, and you can say to the class, OK, I know you're all at different points, but let's focus in on question four. And what typically happens is the teacher then says, Tom, what did you get for question four? But instead you can say, OK, stop what you're doing, everybody. Question four, just jot down what answer you got for question four. Or in another subject, jot down your three key points for question four on your whiteboards. Hover it, three, two, one, show me. And then you can go from there. So I really like this idea of getting book work visible by kind of, you know, the work goes in the book, but the final copy down goes onto the whiteboard. So then you've got this whole class check of effort, check of understanding, and you can go from there. So 
I find those two ideas particularly powerful. Love that. Right. We're on to tip 16 uh, within chapter three, which is six ideas to improve group work. And I wanted to, I, I really, I picked this because, again, there's sort of this, this like divide between those who think group work is absolutely amazing and essential <laughs> and those who despise it. Now, Correct. I am in the group of sort of leaning towards it's great if the context is right. If the if the sort of structure around it is is correct and if it is the right time of the day, then and all these other things, then it can be very, very nice and good and lovely. However, if you work in a particular context or it's, you know, a sort of um, particular situation subject topic time of the day then it is the last thing you would want to do as a teacher <laughs> where do you stand on this crate because you've got a, you've got a tip 16 here ideas to improve group work there's some people who wouldn't even mention group work it's like it's like heresy to include yeah. the phrase group work in a book i'm definitely right. not in that camp but i wonder well, where you are with it yeah it's a, a good one this one so <laughs> First three or four years of my career, group work left, right and centre, particularly if being observed, particularly if Ofsted were coming in, let's whip out the groups. And it was always a disaster. Well, it was always never as effective as it would have been if kids were in pairs or working individually. It was. Yeah. I, and I, I was teaching in the era of kind of Kagan structures and all this. And I've tried it all. I've done all the trendy stuff and it was it never worked. So for about 10 years. I didn't go anywhere near a group. Not not a chance. Paired, paired for me was ideal. Individual, ideal. No point you doing a group. For, for all the obvious reasons. Some kids would sit off. Some kids would dominate. It's very hard to get a sense of individual understanding. You know, just because the group's got it right doesn't, you know, how do I know that the individuals in the group understand it? All those reasons. Um, I just avoided them. And the only reason I'm, and I wouldn't say I'm a group lover, but I'm getting back on board is because I spoke to Sammy Kempner, who's head of maths at Totteridge Academy, where Adam Boxer teaches. And Adam put me in contact with Sammy, said, you've got to speak to him. You've got to speak to him because, I, again, I know Adam's been, been on your show. Adam's, you yeah. know, direct instruction, left, right and centre. He wouldn't touch a group, you know, if you, if you paid him. Whereas Sammy, same school, every lesson's group work. So I think, yeah. what is going, what the hell's going on here? So I spoke to Sammy and it blew my mind what he said. So I'll just, if it's okay, I'll just give you a brief, yeah, kind of a brief overview of it because this absolutely blew my mind. So he said that the key thing is that the group has to live or die on the success of the individuals. And if you read the research into, into group work and collective and collaboration and so on, this, this comes out all the time, that it's all about making sure that the group is responsible, that everyone's got an incentive to work hard and so on and so forth. But that's all well and good, but, but what does it look like in practice? Now, <laughs> when Sammy described this to me, I was like, what the hell are you going on about? So I'll, I'll describe it to you, I'll tell you my reaction, and then I'll tell you where I'm at at the moment with this. So Sammy said what he will do is he'll set his class a task and there'll be in groups of three or groups of four or whatever. And at the end of the task, he'll then choose a group. And what he'll typically do is he'll choose a member in that group who he suspects will be the least likely to get it correct. And this is part of kind of Sammy's mantra of keeping your teaching honest 
by always choosing the child who's least likely to know, perhaps they've been off, perhaps they haven't been listening, perhaps they scored poorly in a test, to make sure that it will, if they're getting it right, the chances are it's more likely that, that others will get it right. So what it'll do, kids have been working on a task. I'll just use you, Tom, if that's okay. So Tom's in the group. So I say, Tom, and can you just explain to me how you would factorize a quadratic? And if you get it wrong, what I do is I don't even look at you. I turn to the rest of the group and I say, what, what's going on here? Why doesn't he know? And what will typically happen is you'll then pipe up saying, oh, no, sorry, sir. No, it's, it's you know, no, and whatever, make some excuse. And I'll say, no, it doesn't matter, Tom. This isn't about you. This is about your teammates. They've let you down. And Tommy then takes it even further. And that group will get a sanction. So it's probably either stay back at the end of the lesson until everyone can explain it or come back at break or whatever, because the group lives or dies on the success of the individual. Now, the flip side of that's also true. If you can explain to me how to factorize a quadratic, you don't get the praise. The group gets the praise because they, you've obviously worked together really well to make sure that all your members can get it right. Now, whenever Sammy described that to me, my first thought was, you are crazy. That is, and I thought, <laughs> a, million, I thought a million reasons why that wouldn't work, right? You can imagine the, the, the parents phoning in, my mm, kids in detention yeah. because Tom got the answer wrong and all this, right? But here's the thing that I then thought, the first time you do this, this will be a disaster. The third time you do it, it's probably going to be a bit tricky. But what about the fifth time you do it? What about the seventh time you do it? What about when the kids realize that you're serious about this? And then the high flyers in your groups realize that it's not enough for them to understand. They've then got to help everyone else understand because what happens to them is now dependent on the rest of the group. So now you have a classroom dynamic where everyone's in it together. And that's what you need for group work to work. But that only works if the stakes are right. And by Sammy doing that, I think that is the thing that's going to make it necessary for, for it to play out that way. Now, I don't profess to be an expert on this by any stretch of the imagination, but it's it's a means of participation that absolutely fascinates me at the moment. So there's Sammy's take on it. And then I also reference a few ideas. I'll shut up after this, Tom. I also reference a few no, ideas. No, from, great. <laughs> I also reference a few ideas from um, Peter Lillenhall's Building Thinking Classrooms in Mathematics, where he talks about how the optimal group size is three, because three, if you have any more than three, you get subgroups forming. And if yeah. you have any less than three, you don't have that diversity of ideas that enable groups to flourish. He also talks about um, groups working not just on whiteboards, but on vertical whiteboards and all this. So it's, it's, it's an area that fascinates me. I kind of broke my rule a little bit in the book for this particular section because I would not have the experience of group work that I would have with paired work, cold call, mini whiteboards, all the other things I talk about. Yeah. But I found it so interesting. And as you say, it's such a divisive topic that I thought it was worth sharing the ideas of both Peter and Sammy to see what, um, yeah, what readers made of it, if that makes sense. I mean, I find that really interesting, the sort of holding holding mm. students to account within, within groups. I, 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 I mean, to me, you've, sort, you've got to have the backing of, of, of the school. You've got to have the backing of colleagues. You've got to have the backing of the collective students. Yeah. You might end up with a, another protest. Ha ha. Um, you know, you, you've got to have you've got to have a lot in place for that to work, um, and you've got to have established a real sort of presence with the students. I would suggest for for, for that to work. However, 
I like the sound of it. Um, did you observe him in that in the classroom? Was it he or her? Sorry, I didn't hear. It's that. it's he. Yeah, it's Sammy. It's yeah. he. No, I haven't. I I haven't. Um, I haven't seen him in action. But I've heard. If this makes sense, I've heard from kind of three independent sources. Yeah. About it, but no, I I need. No, it to, sounds I amazing. To, I mean, I wasn't saying I need that to in the sense action. of saying it like, oh, it probably isn't true. <laughs> like I wasn't saying it like that. But what I, what I was going to ask is how the desks are set up, because one of my biggest bugbears, I guess, with group work is you the the actual setup of the room mm. is quite important. If you prefer to teach in rows, which I generally do, or a horseshoe, rows or a horseshoe, then setting up effective group work become and then getting it back to your if you like yeah. generic classroom becomes an issue to do what you've just described i guess you'd have to make a decision whereby you were saying my entire teaching practice is going to go with this approach because the moment you try to do something a bit more didactic and a bit more um sort of based on i guess direct instruction that depending on the way the room is set up, can be an obstacle. This show is brought to you in partnership with John Cat Educational, a leading publisher of books, directories, educational guides and magazines specifically aimed at forward-thinking schools in the UK and beyond. Have you checked out their latest releases? Don't miss out. Visit johncatbookshop.com to explore their full range of titles and advance your own professional development today. Happy reading. Yeah, I think so. Possibly. I think maybe it's not too big a problem. I mean, I'm a big row yeah. fan as well, but I think if, particularly if we take the idea of groups of three and you've already got two kids kind of sat at a desk, you can just whiz one a chair around the other side and you've got a three. So yeah. so maybe, maybe it works okay. I don't know. I, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll tell you what. Can I'll just... Oh, so yeah, yeah, you give it a go. I'll just mention one other thing about groups, you know, because uh, yeah. there's another one that blew my mind as well. Because my intuition was you keep the group stable once you get groups that are working well together surely you don't roll the dice and gamble and mix the groups up because heaven forbid you know it's, it's hard enough to get groups working well anyway surely yeah. you want that consistency but again when i read peter lillenhall's book he says no you want to do the exact opposite because if groups remain stable the kids learn their roles within that group. They learn that they're the, you know, the lower achieving. Their job is to listen. Their job is to copy because the other high flyers are going to be, you know, figuring out. Whereas all the kids realize my job is to lead this group. I'm going to have to be, you know, take the lead and blah, blah, blah. Whereas what Peter Lillenhall suggests is the best thing you can do. And again, this blew my mind is randomize the groups every single lesson so that what happens then is the kids go into that group almost with a blank slate because there's no kind of preconceptions or fewer preconceptions going in there about what your role is in that group so that everybody's on a bit more of an equal footing. Now, again, there's a million reasons why you might think I'm not going to do that. You know, behavior, got to keep these particular kids apart, the logistics of sorting the groups and so on. But again, this is one of those things that just fascinates me because I would have never thought of that in a million years. It goes completely against my intuition, but that's why I thought it was worth writing about. No, really, really interesting stuff. We're going to crack on to another tip now, which is tip number 29, which is in chapter four, checking for understanding. Again, another one that's that's quite divisive, Craig. I keep picking them, but <laughs> I, was, I was sort of reading it and going through and thinking, oh, this is interesting. 10 ideas to improve exit tickets. Now, yeah. I've seen 
exit tickets get a good old battering on Twitter on <laughs> Twitter at various points. Uh, so, how what is an exit ticket, and how would you improve exit tickets? Yeah, it's it's a funny one this one, right? So I've I've been there. I've I've done it all with exit tickets. I've done the gimmicky ones where I was literally just doing it for the sake of saying I'm doing an exit ticket and and not really doing anything with it. I've also done the ones that take forever to mark and and don't really function. So I'll tell you where I'm at at the moment. So an exit ticket, in in kind of my way of, of defining it, anyway, is a question or a set of questions you ask at the end of a lesson to get a sense of where the kids are at that point. And a few things that are, the reason they're called exit tickets is traditionally they're done on a slip of paper that the kids hand to you on their way out of the door. And to make them effective, they have to be quick to mark. If you're spending anywhere, well, let's say more than five minutes, 10 at most going through them, then for a workload perspective, you're just not gonna stick to it because you've also got all your other marking to do and, and, and so on and so forth. So. They've got to be a, f- a few kind of key criteria, and that's the big one. They, they've got to be quick to mark. They've got to be quick for you to get that that sense of where your kids are at. So a few things that I think are quite useful when it comes to, to exit tickets, and again, I can only speak from a, a maths perspective here. Um, the first thing is in terms of the pitch, and th- this, goes to, this goes back to just a general point, actually. Um, and I fall into this trap as well. The, the last question you ask in a lesson typically see, is, is often the hardest question. The kind of lesson builds up to a challenge. So I saw this the other day and I was watching a maths lesson and the lesson was on congruency. And the kids have been doing fairly straightforward questions all the way through the lesson. And then the last question that the teacher asked, put a big challenge on the board, ask them this question. And the interesting thing there is if the last question you ask kids is in a lesson is the hardest question, Almost by definition, only, you know, a few kids are going to get it right. And the rest of the kids are going to feel pretty kind of crap about themselves. And you as a teacher, you don't really have a sense of where your kids are at, because what do you take from that? Just kind of two or three of my kids have got it. What about the rest of the kids? So just a general practice, I think it's a good idea to end the lesson with a question that assesses the core objectives of that lesson. And the way I kind of think of this when I'm thinking of lesson planning is, What is the question that I hope every single child in this class will get right by the end of this lesson? And that's the question that I ask at the end of the lesson. Even if we even if 10 minutes previously, we've done something much harder than that. Let's bring it back down to this core objective. So that would fit into my exit ticket. It would always be a question or a set of questions that assess. Certainly, at least the first one would assess the kind of core objective of the lesson. Whereas I I see a lot of exit tickets that are sometimes pitched a bit too hard. And I think that can be that can be potentially uh, problematic. I think it's also worth varying the style of questions. So typically I'll do three questions in an exit ticket, the first of which will be a diagnostic question, a multiple choice question. And that will be the easiest. That will be that assessing that core knowledge. And whenever I kind of flick through my kids responses, that'll be the first thing I do. I won't look at all three responses for each child. I'll just flick through and look at the responses to question one, the multiple choice question. Have they circled A, B, C, or D? Because if I'm flicking through and I can see that the majority of my kids are struggling with that question, there's no point me looking at question two or three. I'm gonna stop there because there's my starting point next lesson. We've got this first question wrong. Let's address that, let's see for that. And because it's multiple choice, I can look at that and assess that super quickly. 30 kids, 30 seconds, really, really quick. If that's all good, then I'll look at the second question. 
and that'll tend to be a bit harder and it'll be an open response question in math so kids might have to carry out a procedure or some, something like that that'll be quick to assess as well and if the kids have struggled on that that's where i stop i don't bother looking at question three because question two they've struggled on there's my starting point next lesson and finally, I'll do a third question, which will be, I'll vary the question type. And it might be a le learning generated example. It might be, give me an example of a question that have, give me, give me two fractions that add together to make three quarters or something like that. It'll be something a bit out of the ordinary. And I'll only look at that question if question one and question two have been fine. And I'll have a quick flip through question three. And what I'll typically do is I'll start the next lesson, if everything's going well, with a couple of interesting examples that kids have come up with for, for question three. And the last thing I'll say about exit tickets, and this is true of homework, and I know Adam Box has been ch chatted to you about this, exit tickets only work if the kids see they feed through into the next lesson. If they hand that slip of paper in or whatever, and they never hear about it again, then where's their incentive to put effort into that? Whereas if the next lesson starts with the teacher saying, so I looked through your exit tickets last night and there were some really interesting responses. Let's have a look at this one. What do we think of this? Then all of a sudden kids realize, well, you know what? Those slips of paper do actually matter. So I'm going to put a bit more effort into them. So yeah, there, there'd just be a few, a couple of ideas if that makes sense about exit tickets. Brilliant. Fantastic. Love that. Right. We, we've got about we've got about 11 minutes or so left. So I'm going to sort of uh, go for maybe one one sure. more tip to discuss in, in a bit of detail here. And it's one that's tip number 37, um, which is on chapter five on responsive teaching. Um, and tip number 37 is what do you do when some students understand and some don't so i think mm -hmm. this refers and you can correct me if i'm wrong here craig from reading it if like 50 percent of the class get it and the other 50 percent don't do you carry do you carry on with the whole class or not and how do you make that decision and you have on page 214 in your book created this nice decision tree i might take a picture of that and tweet it out later craig or maybe you can whatever sure. Um, but that would be a nice thing to go along with this so people can actually see it. Um, I can't tweet it right now because of the lighting in this room. But basically, <laughs> so people, I'll try and explain it. Basically, there's a big decision flow chart. Um, uh, so, Craig, maybe you can talk us through this idea of this decision tree and what you do when half the students in the class don't understand and the other half do. Yeah, it's a good one to end on this one, actually. And um, so a few things to say about this. So the whole chapter on responsive teaching, the reason it follows the chapter on checking for understanding is that I often think in CPD, the focus is on the checking for understanding and not on the responsive teaching. And the thing is, like, let's say you nail whiteboards or you nail cold call or you nail group work. You're getting all this useful information from your kids. But if you don't then respond to it, what's the point? And, you know, often I'll see lessons where the teacher's brilliant use of mini whiteboards. The kids hold up their whiteboards. Half the kids have got it right. Half the kids have got it wrong. And the teacher then just kind of models the right answer and cracks on or almost doesn't acknowledge that some of the kids are wrong. So the whole point of checking for understanding is so you can respond as a teacher. So that's why I wanted to kind of separate those those two out, if, if, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think. I think the, the one you've picked here is, is a really common um, scenario in classes. And yeah. the, in my decision tree, the kind of cutoff for me is 80%. So if 80% or more of your kids are getting a question right 
when you've used your check for understanding, you travel along one path of the decision tree. And if fewer than 80%, you go down the other path. And the reason I've chosen 80% is two reasons. Uh, one, Rosenshein talks about 80% as the kind of success rate to aim for. And on a practical level, if you've got 30 kids in the class, six feels to me the kind of upper boundary. You won't want any more than six. If you've got six who don't get something in the moment, I think that's a small enough number that with an explanation and then with a little check later on, a little conversation later on, you, that's manageable. Any more than six, if you've got eight, if you've got 10, if you've got 12 who are struggling, I think you're better traveling down the other path of the decision tree and doing something else. So that'd be the first thing I'd say. 80% uh, is my kind of cutoff. So let's imagine we've done a whole class check for understanding and we can see that we've got fewer than 80% of kids who've, who've got it right. And um, the way I describe it in the book is just for simplicity, let's imagine it's a diagnostic question, kids are voting A, B, C or D, but this will work as I describe with any, with any kind of question, it's just easy to explain with A, B, C or D. So what I'll do, let's imagine the correct answer is A, and when I say to kids, three, two, one, show me your answers, there's a whole range of answers. Some have gone for A, some for B, some for C, some for D. I think, there are two things you can do in that scenario and you can use both of them, either of them, you know, it's up to preference, variety, whatever you want. So the, the two things are this. One is to instigate a paired discussion. So I'll say to kids, right, fantastic. I can see we've got some disagreement here. We love a discussion in this classroom. So what I want you to do is I want you to turn to your partner. I want the person who's closest to the door to go first. And I want you to say, I think the answer is this because... Then I want you to listen to your partner say, I think the answer is this, because if you disagree, can you convince your partner that you're correct? And if you agree, what's the best explanation you can come up with between you that will convince somebody who doesn't agree with you? So I would instigate a paired discussion. So that'd be option one. Option two is that you go around the class and you pick out some kids who've gone for each of the options. So, Tom, I can see you've gone for A. Tell me why you think it's A. Ben, you've gone for B. Tell me why you think it's B and so on. Just collect a few thoughts. So whether you've done partner talk or whether you've done the kind of collecting a range of answers, at the end of that process, both of which are super quick, 30 seconds, one minute, um, you say to kids, okay, now it's your chance. Let's have a revote. If you, you can stick with your original thought, uh, your original choice if you want, or you can change to, to whatever you want. Three, two, one, revote. And I'd say 95% of the time, following the revote, all kids have agreed upon the correct answer. Or we've certainly hit that 80% threshold of kids who've got it right. And the temptation there is to say, oh, fantastic, they've nailed it now, let's move on. But what you've got to remember is that a few minutes ago, some of the kids were really struggling here. So what I do in that scenario is the first thing is I explain the correct answer myself using really precise, concise language. And then I offer a, a second check for understanding because I need some more evidence. So in maths, it's quite easy. I'll just change some of the numbers. Um, but again, I've got to test whether that knowledge of that question has been improved in the moment or whether kids are just, you know, going off what their partner said and so on and so forth. Um, and I think just as a basic model, this idea of Check whole class understanding. If whole class understanding isn't secure as it needs to be, either instigate a paired discussion or collect a range of range of uh, responses. Then, oops, sorry. and then prompt the kids to um, to revote. You offer an explanation and then a follow up check for understanding. I think I think that works quite well. And the final thing I'll say is that 
for a kind of cycle of responsive teaching, I think four elements need to be in place. And what I often see is kind of emphasis on the first two elements. So I'll end on this, Tom, and then feel free yeah. to ask me any questions. So whenever teachers are teaching um, and you ask kids a question, the first thing you've got to get right is you've got to get a good check for understanding. So that's what we've talked about already, this notion of mass participation. So that's the first. If you're going to be a responsive teacher, you've got to get mass participation. Otherwise, you're taking a big old gamble that Tom's answer is representative of the rest of the class. So get your check for understanding. If that understanding isn't there, the next thing you've got to do as a teacher is you've got to provide a good explanation. You've got to help the kids understand not just what the right answer is, but why the wrong answer is wrong. So you've got to do a good model. But that's where a lot of, of teaching stops. Check for understanding, do the model. But if you just end it there, you're crossing your fingers and hoping that your explanation you've just given makes sense to the kids and they're going to retain it. That's a big old gamble. So the remaining two stages of this cycle of responsive teaching are you've got to do a follow up check for understanding, as we've spoke about. So you've got to check in the moment whether that explanation's made sense. But then the hardest thing to do, but if I think it's the most important thing to do, is you've got to then make a note to schedule in a retrieval opportunity to make sure that kids have retained that. Because yeah. five minutes ago, they were really struggling just because you've explained it. And then with all those hints fresh in their mind, they've been able to get a follow up question right. doesn't mean that problem's been averted. So you've got to make a note to say next lesson, I'm going to put this in my do now or next week. It's going to be in my homework or in two weeks, it's going to be in a low stakes quiz. You've got to physically schedule in a retrieval opportunity, because I think that's the only way you know whether this responsive teaching that you've done has actually hit home. I hope all that makes sense anyway. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely does. Um, Craig, we'll have to do a part two sometime because it's, been, uh, it's sure. been wonderful and we only managed, I think, uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven of your tips. And there's like, how many are in here? Well, there's 400, well, 470 ideas and I think there's like about 111 tips or something like that, something like that. Yeah, there's a fair There you few. go. So we, we've given a snapshot anyway, but absolutely <laughs> um, so interesting. And um, thank you very much for giving up the time to, to sort of share those tips, so to speak. Um if you're interested in Craig's book, you can actually see at the top of this space, if you're listening on Twitter now, um, a link to the book. So you can sort of explore it more that way. If you're listening to this as a podcast, then we will leave a link to the book in the show notes of the podcast, wherever you are listening to this on Teachers Talk Radio, Spotify, iTunes, Apple Pods, um, Podbean, wherever it is you pick up your podcast. Do give us a follow on there and do leave us a little review if you have found this show interesting or engaging or helpful um we are going to publish it as a podcast probably well very soon it'll be available through the website so if you have a colleague or somebody perhaps that you mentor or work with who you think this would be helpful to listen to then please do also pass the link on to them and if they're not on twitter they can always find it as a podcast by just going to the teachers talk radio website um craig i wondered whether you had any final messages you want to give to our listeners about tips for teachers yeah just just one quick one and that is it goes back to something we said earlier tom 
And that is just to choose one thing to work on at a time. The, the worst thing you can do is you've listened to this podcast and then you're going tomorrow, you change your cold call, you're introducing high value activity structures, what, you're whipping out a whiteboard left, right and center. You've a Venn diagram spinning around. It'd just be a disaster. You pick one thing that you want to work on. You choose an easy class to work on it with. You then embed it in other classes and then you move on to another idea. One thing at a time will be my final piece of advice. Brilliant, Craig. I'm sure we'll speak again, but thanks very much for coming on tonight. And uh, yeah, it's been great. So thank you. Uh, loved it, Tom. Nice one, mate. Right. That's it. Uh, thanks to Nathan for admining as always. And we will be back in 25 seconds live on Teachers Talk Radio with Anthony. Um, he will be on his debut live show starting right now. Uh, if you click ttradio.org and click listen live, you can go straight into that show and start listening to that. If you want some more TTR this evening, he'll be on until about 10 o'clock. So thanks very much for listening, everybody. And we will see you again soon on TTR. You've been listening to Teachers Talk Radio. Tune in live and listen back at ttradio.org. We look forward to hearing from you next time on Teachers Talk Radio.